But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Ruth 1, 16. Outstanding. And that will be our memory verse for this month. You know anything about unmet expectations? I had an unmet expectation this morning. I expected that extra hour of sleep to do a lot more for me than it actually did. Couldn't believe how fast the alarm came this morning. And so that was an unmet expectation. I've often thought of the boys, especially the two that have just come home, and I realized this the other night as I was helping put them to bed, they were in their beds, they were laying on their bunks, and one of them looked at me and he said, Dad, and they say, Papa, why is it so cold in America? <laughs> He's got six or seven blankets on, pillows. He goes to bed with long pajamas. He wears his uh, winter hat and gloves around the house. Um, I suspect that there may be some unmet expectations on what the climate in America feels like. But there's a lot of things in this world that can be an unmet expectation, is there not? I mean, maybe we purchase a new vehicle and we're so excited about it. This is the best vehicle and a week or two later, boom, something's wrong, it's not working. Unmet expectation. Maybe a new piece of technology that we've been waiting for. A new computer, a new iPad, some kind of new device. And we get it and we turn it on and it's just not what we expected. Maybe a job. Took a new job thinking this is going to be it. This is awesome. Perfect fit. It's going to be amazing. And a few weeks in there's a coworker or boss. Things aren't going to turn out the way that you expected we even see this in marriages, in families. There's brokenness. There's heartache. Some things start off so good, only to end in pain and in difficulty. And as we continue to explore the book of Ruth together, we are confronted with this question today. In bitterness and pain, where can we look to see the steadfast love of God. Where can we see it in the brokenness and the bitterness and the heartache and pain that is sometimes a part of life? We are in Ruth chapter 1, verses 6 to 22 today. And before we begin, let's pray. Father, indeed, we are thankful for your word. It is powerful. And Lord, we acknowledge today that every word of it is useful to change our minds, to convict our hearts. And we know that you are at work even now in this corporate activity as we're gathered together in our homes and here in this building to study your word. We find ourselves in the book of Ruth today, Lord, in a rather hopeless situation. And we pray that you would help direct our minds and our hearts through the text today towards the person that we can look to when life feels, and seems broken. May you be honored and glorified in our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Ruth chapter 1, verses 6 to 22. Then Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will, not return. We will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back. My daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem. It was the beginning of the barley harvest. Terrible tragedy had befallen Naomi's family. And Naomi's intent now with this tragedy behind her is to return to her homeland. The testimony of the Lord's restoration of the land had reached her ears. The Lord had visited his people, even in their disobedience that led to their oppression. 
God was dealing kindly with them. And what was once the empty house of bread, the city of Bethlehem, is now again full. Verse 7 ignites this journey back to the land of Judah. Yet this time, on Naomi's way back, there are two strangers to the land of Israel who are now with her. With her husband and with their husbands dead and their mother-in-law a widow, Orpah and Ruth were now tied to this ancient Near Eastern obligation where they were needing to care for their mother-in-law. It's an obligation that they had not yet been released from. And normally for a woman, this was an obligation that would come later in life. After she's already established a name, a family, a home. But for Orpah and for Ruth, most of their adult lives still laid before them. And Naomi has time to think as they journey together, to consider the fates of her daughters-in-law. And she comes to the determination that she is going to release Orpah and Ruth from their obligation, giving them opportunity to return to their homes, to find new husbands, to begin new lives. And it's interesting, friends, whenever we come to the narratives of the Bible, whether in the old or whether in the new, we are forced to deal with both the good and the misguided responses of the characters we are presented with. But for Jesus, we are reminded that the characters of the Bible are much, not much different than ourselves. No one is perfect but for Jesus. And the testimony of God in the Bible, Old and New Testament, is that he uses the weak and the lowly. He uses the poor and even the sometimes misguided to accomplish his plans and his purposes for redemption. In Naomi's response to Orpah and Ruth, we witness good thinking, right thinking that's mingled together with some misguided thinking. And we want to deal with the good first in our text today and then move to the misguided. Look again at verse 8. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And so there's some good here. Part of the good is that Naomi is displaying kindness towards Orpah and Ruth. She's releasing them from their obligation to care for her. She's sending them off with the Lord's blessing. And Naomi's blessing, it indicates to us that though she had sojourned in Moab for around 10 years or so, that she had not adopted the Moabite god whose name was Kamosh. She was still following Yahweh. And Naomi recognizes in her statement that Orpah and Ruth are dealing kindly with her as they dealt kindly with her dead sons. And she's releasing them from their obligation. She's granting them an opportunity to begin again. 
And here again, there's this contrast of sojourn and rest that we looked at last week. They're on display here. For Naomi, her sojourn is not yet over. She still has a way to go. But for her daughters-in-law, rest can be found in the houses of their mothers. There's more good here. Naomi is demonstrating the working nature of her faith in God by her willingness to inconvenience herself for the good of her daughters-in-law. Shortly, what Naomi is doing here is she is considering Orpah and Ruth's needs before her own. And it's interesting, verses 9 through 11 really highlight what was lost. If you like to underline in your Bibles, if you underline the word sons or husband, they appear a combined six times in just those three verses. Naomi, we remember, was an apathrothite, a woman of fruit, and she now views herself as fruitless. Nothing left to produce that would help her daughters-in-law thrive in what was an increasingly difficult world. And as we consider all that Naomi had lost, what kind of woman must she have been? What love, patience, kindness is she demonstrating? And Naomi here, she has every right by ancient Near Eastern standards. She has every right to stay together with her daughters-in-law for her own protection, for her own provision, for her own fiscal security, to keep them close to her. And initially, what do we see in the text? Both even wanted to stay. They didn't want to go. They had lived together. They had endured pain together, heartache together. They wept and cried and supported one another through unspeakable tragedy in their lives. Naomi understood the laws of Israel concerning marriage. You can find them in Deuteronomy chapter 25 verses 5 through 10. And her response is steeped in her understanding of these laws. She has no other sons. Who could take the hand of Orpah and Ruth? For them, if they were to return to Israel with Naomi, there would have been little hope for a husband. And it's interesting what Naomi is doing here is very different than what Elimelech did. Is it not? We recognize Elimelech made the decision to sojourn, but never planned. It's never in the text that he planned for the care of his wife were he to pass on or pass away. But what is Naomi doing here? Where Elimelech had failed to plan for the care of Naomi, were he to die and leave her widowed in a foreign land, Naomi is determined to not leave Orpah and Ruth in a similar state, alone and with no protection in a strange and foreign land. So two times... Naomi dictates to Orpah and Ruth, turn back, go your way, do not follow me, I have nothing left, my womb is empty, my home is empty, turn back. Her words at the end of verse 13 reveal to us some mis 
guided thinking that was dictating her instructions. Look at verse 13. No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Naomi believes that the Lord is against or opposed to her. She is misunderstanding the purpose of her suffering. Naomi sees her state as punishment from the Lord, his hand against her. She has in some way become an enemy to him in her mind. And this was a commonly held perception in the ancient Near East. We see it clearly in the book of Job. If a person faced hardship, their hardship must be a direct result of something that they had done to offend the Lord. And you know what's interesting, friends? This is not just a commonly held perspective in ancient times. But this was a perspective that actually crept into the New Testament as well. You remember in John chapter 9, we studied it together. We see this thinking on full display. Jesus' own disciples in John chapter 9. Take a look. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. And what do his disciples say? Same kind of thinking. Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? Who sinned that he was born blind? And you know what we find, friends? Wrong thinking about our suffering or others' suffering will lead to further suffering and pain for ourselves and or for others. We've all heard it before. They must have had it coming. They've been doing that for years. They deserved what they got. Be careful, friends. What we know about the man blind from birth is that his suffering came with great purpose, did it not? John chapter 9, verse 3, what did Jesus say? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And as we continue our exposition of Ruth over the next number of weeks together, we will uncover the purposes of God for Naomi's suffering as we witness God's hand of redemption and restoration at work in their lives. And Naomi's misguided thinking regarding her suffering is leading her down a difficult pathway, one that could lead to further pain and further loss. If Orpah and Ruth were to listen to Naomi and they were to turn back and they were to leave, who would care for and provide for Naomi? And now faced with the impossibility of the situation and Naomi's difficult demand to turn back, Orpah and Ruth have their final decision before them. Look at verse 14. They come to a conclusion of what they're going to do. It comes quickly. They lifted up their voices and wept again. Orpah 
kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Orpah made the reasonable choice, did she not? Orpah made the choice that looked right on paper. She made the most logical choice. Freed from her obligation to care for her mother-in-law and informed of the desperate situation that faced her as a foreigner in the land of Israel with a God who she thought was oppressing her, when given the opportunity to return to what she knew and what she was comfortable with, she responded, perhaps how many of us would have as well if faced in the same situation. She kissed Naomi, she waved goodbye, and off she goes. And friends, we never hear her name again in this narrative. And what is troublesome about Orpah's decision is the clue that Naomi gives in the very, very next verse, verse 15. Take a look. And she's talking to Ruth now. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and where else? God's. Lower case G, plural. Return after your sister-in-law. Orpah wasn't just going back to her people, but also to the gods that they served. And you know what's interesting? If you follow the rabbinic traditions in this narrative, the rabbinic traditions that they, where they trace the genealogy of these individuals through, many believe that Orpah would later become the progenitor of Goliath, meaning that she was in the line of Goliath. Many rabbis hold to that tradition. And it's interesting, as one kissed Naomi and turned back, another clung and would eventually become grandmother to a king. Ruth's response was very different than Orpah's, was it not? Ruth clung. Now let me ask, does that word sound familiar to you? That word cling? As you think about the Old Testament, does that word stand out to you in any way? Does it jump off the page to you and remind you of another text where we're told to cling? Any of you have that text read at your wedding ceremony? Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. It's the same exact word. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast or cling, the same exact word, to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. With her husband dead and gone, Ruth would now cling or hold fast to her mother-in-law. And in what may be one of the most infamous scriptures related to an example of devotion and commitment in all of the Bible, we see 16 and 17. Ruth lays aside this opportunity to return to her people. And she takes up this commitment to remain stitched together with her mother-in-law. We have to look carefully at her words as a pattern that emerges. The order of the words in 16 and 17 are both intentional and important. Let's read both of those verses and then we'll break them down. 16 and 17. 
But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. The statement is actually bookended. At the beginning of verse 16 and the end of verse 17, there are two sentences where Ruth lays out her desires before Naomi. First in verse 16, stop urging me to leave you. Stop telling me to go away. I mean, Ruth is a pretty resilient woman. If I'm told to go away two or three times, I'm probably going away. (laughs) Stop, Ruth says. And then the last sentence in verse 17, what does she say? May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Ruth is serious about this commitment. What we might say today, the words that we might use today is she is all in. There is no turning back. She's not looking back like Lot's wife. Thinking about all that she lost and left behind. That is in her past. It's gone. She is 100% with Naomi. And if you move to explore the middle section of those two verses, between the first and the last sentence, Ruth's proclamation, what we see is that Naomi is always given priority before Ruth. Watch. Where you, Naomi, go, I, Ruth, will go. Will you, Naomi, lodge, I, Ruth, will lodge. And then the next statement, very, very, very important. The order is intentional. Your people shall be my people. Your God, Yahweh, Naomi's God, my God. And if you notice, relating to Naomi's people comes before relating to Naomi's God. And there's a reason, friends. We cannot relate rightly to God if we are not relating rightly to God. His people. Jesus picks up on this in the New Testament. This isn't just an Old Testament thing. This is a New Testament reality as well. And Jesus picks up on it in the book of Matthew chapter 15. It's very interesting. The Pharisees and the scribes have come to Jesus with a question related to ritual purification before eating. It turns out Jesus wasn't washing his hands right. His disciples weren't washing their hands right. And in today's society, in the age of coronavirus, that would be a big no-no as well. And this is what the scribes and the Pharisees are concerned about. If you want to flip in your Bibles to Matthew 15, I'm just going to read it because it's pretty amazing what Jesus does here. Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 to 9 He's going to show them how hypocritical their question is when they're not even relating rightly to their own families and they're concerned about Jesus' personal holiness and his cleanliness practices. Matthew chapter 15, the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, 
Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is now given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The Pharisees and scribes were shortchanging their own parents and expecting that they were going to be able to rightly relate to God. They were forfeiting and shirking the care of their own parents to fill their own pockets in the name of the Lord. I'm serving Jesus. I'm serving the Lord. Sorry, I'm serving the Lord in the temple. So anything that you would have gotten from me now belongs to him. Sorry, mom and dad. You'll have to figure it out on your own as you age. And whose pockets were filled? Theirs. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah chapter 29, 13, but the sentiment is also found in the book of Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 31. It is vain worship to honor God with our lips while we refuse to or refrain from loving those he places in our pathways. Ruth says to Naomi, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Ruth understands this. There's no way she can rightly worship and relate to and follow and honor Elohim if she is not rightly relating to his chosen people. And following Naomi's God as her own God first meant adopting Naomi's people as her own people. And consider the length of this commitment, friends. What does it look like to adopt another people group as your own. Zoom in here with me for just a second. This is a commitment that many of our global partners understand. They get this. Those who have served overseas, those who have served other people in foreign nations and other countries, Many of them know what it means to identify with another people group. In fact, some of our global partners, they come to know and love the people that they serve so well that when they return to America, they sometimes feel like foreigners here. Because they've so closely aligned with and adopted and united with and learn to love the people that they serve. Ruth is giving up her identification with the people and gods of Moab to fully identify with the people and with the God of Israel. And Naomi now sees this commitment. She recognizes Ruth's determination and she relents from trying to convince her any further of returning home. 
Naomi's return and new beginning in her home country would become Ruth's new opportunity in a foreign land as she begins again. Verse 19, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Here's a map of the potential path that they took to return. You can see Moab. I guess it's on your right. And you can see them going up over the peanut, the top of the peanut, over into Bethlehem. And as we mentioned last week, when people move towards Jerusalem, good things begin to happen. And for Naomi and for Ruth, the first good was God's hand of protection as they journeyed from Moab to Bethlehem. He protected them. The second good is that when they return, the town is buzzing. The word literally connotates this idea of a humming amongst the people. They're excited. They have questions. The added years and the stress of life made Naomi's appearance change so that the people needed to question whether it was truly her or not. What of her sons? What of her husband? Where is her family? Who is this foreign immigrant woman with her? You can imagine the back alley gossip and the side conversations that would have been taking place in Naomi's hometown. And isn't it interesting that when Naomi comes back, the first action she takes is to ask for a name change. I am not the woman who left here. Naomi's name in the Hebrew language literally means pleasant. That's what it means. When she left her land, she was a pleasant woman with a husband. Leaving for new hope, new opportunity, but she's returning and things are very different now. Job had a similar statement. If you remember in chapter 27, verse 2, as God lives who has taken away my right and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter. Same word. Call me Mara. It's a word play, and the word literally means bitter. And so Naomi is asking her people when she returns, when she comes back, she's saying, please don't call me Naomi anymore. I'm, I'm not coming back the same way I left. I am bitter. Call me bitter. And her response in verse 21 again highlights the contrast that we looked at last week. This contrast of fool and empty. Look at how she says it in verse 21. I went away fool and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me pleasant when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? And again, in her misguided thinking, she's attributing the hand of the Lord to bringing this calamity upon her, being against her. And in her state of emptiness and sorrow, she's unable to consider how might God use this situation in any way for my good and his glory. She's returning bitter, defeated, and hopeless. 
I'd ask this question today. Have you ever shared in Naomi's perspective? Do you know somebody in your life who has? There are times when the bitter circumstances of our lives cloud us from understanding how God has our good and His glory in view. In this place, friends, we see from such a limited perspective, this is a very temporal place. We're only here for a very short time, like a blink. Bitterness, friends, is like gangrene. If left untreated, it spreads. And if our bitterness is directed towards God and our current plot in life, it will necessarily infect the other relationships of our lives. We can become closed off, cold, unapproachable, desperate, lonely, even alienated from the people who love us most. We all know that person in our life who struggles bitterness. Hurt, loss, pain, brokenness, unmet expectations create a fog that hinders our perspective of the good and gracious God who has saved us. And we know the words of Romans 8.28. We know those words. But when we're found in a state of pain and loss, sometimes we simply do not have the faith to believe them. Narratives like Ruse are giving to us to remind us that God is faithful even when we cannot see. Though Naomi is hurting, though she is bitter, though she has been dealt this difficult deck in her life, though she cannot see, because of the testimony of God's enduring word, as we gather as a church today, what the Lord has given to us, the gift that we have in his word, is that we are given sight. And it should be hopeful for us who are in similar situations, who are Maybe even for those of us who have shared in similar attitudes towards God. Even when we are found in life's most difficult circumstances. Just as Jeremiah came to discover in his lamentation over the city of Jerusalem. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And now we're going to see that Naomi and Ruth's difficult journey has brought them back home. And it's a time and a season of new beginnings. We've heard this quote before. I don't know who said it. I don't know who owns it, but it's a good one. One journey's ending is another's new beginning. Look at verse 22. So Naomi returned... And Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem when? At the beginning of the barley harvest. If you underline a verb, if you're an underliner in your Bible, the, word, the verb return is used 12 times in chapter 1. It's a prominent theme in this first chapter. Naomi and Ruth have completed their return to Bethlehem. It's sometime between April and May. The barley is ready to harvest. And within a week or so of the barley harvest, the wheat harvest would follow. And the final sentence of our text today is a foreshadowing. 
that though Naomi's sorrow may last for a night, there is joy that is coming in the morning. Harvest are time to celebrate, are they not? We celebrate the harvest. Harvests are evidence of God's providence and provision and protection. He's delivered the fruit of the season. Seasons of harvest, friends, are seasons of joy. Isaiah chapter 9, you've multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. As they are glad when they divide the spoil. And friends, please let us not be quick to forget about another time in history when two adults, this time a poor married couple in a desperate circumstance, would also journey back to their hometown of Bethlehem to be counted for a census. And while they are there, they would give birth to their firstborn son. They would lay him in a humble manger, in a stable. And his birth would create quite the buzz around town. And the world would be changed forever. In our bitterness and our pain, friends, we look unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, to see the steadfast love of God. This is what we're going to begin to see as we continue to open the pages of Ruth. God is preparing Ruth and Naomi for a new beginning. Though Naomi left full only to return empty, she is returning at the exact moment the Lord has prepared and Naomi will live to be full and fruitful again. And next week, Next week, we will meet the man that God has harvested and made ready. And we will rejoice in the hope that his presence brings to the narrative. Let's pray. Lord, indeed, your word gives us great hope. Your word gives us sight We are able to see, Father, because of the testimony of your faithfulness throughout history. We are given the advantage of seeing the end from the beginning. Thank you for the hope. Lord, when our faith is weak, when we are mired in seasons of difficulty and pain, loss, perhaps even bitterness, Lord, help us to grab hold of the steadfast love of your son Jesus. The hope that he gives us. And what his life and death and resurrection mean for us. That we can live an abundant life in his name that glorifies you. Lord, we prepare our hearts and our minds today to celebrate our Savior. To remember his sacrifice as we participate in communion together this morning. It is a time, Lord, to remember, to proclaim the death, the burial, and the resurrection 
of your son, Jesus. Lord, as we take our elements today, I pray now that you would prepare our hearts to receive them. We would receive them in good joy and fellowship, honoring you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.